Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Good morning, everyone. You can all hear me. How are you? Thanks for coming today. Um, this is the panel on mines and all the toxic stuff that's oozing out that has us very afraid. Um, the jumping off point to illustrate the issue is um, the Gold King Mine spill. I'd first like to open by acknowledging this as the ancestral shared territory of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, and other Plains peoples. And then go into a description of the Gold King Mine spill. On August 5th, 2015, EPA contractors breached a plug of rock and debris that was blocking an entrance to the Gold King Mine in Silverton, Colorado, outsurged 3 million gallons of wastewater contaminated with various heavy metals, including iron, arsenic, zinc, cadmium, lead. And it burst out of the mine, down a hillside, into Cement Creek, then into the Animas River, then made its way through the San Juan. It turned it tan-colored, all the water, and it went through the Navajo Nation, and that messed them up for a long time. Um, it turns out that this spill merely made visible what happens on a grand scale every day, very bit by bit. Um, so I'm going to first give you a little visual of what this spill was like. That gives you a visual of what we're talking about. Um, here to shed light on that and the bigger picture are to my left, Ronald Cohen, PhD. He's a professor emeritus at the Colorado School of Mines, an environmental engineer who has studied the hydrology, chemistry, and geography of the Colorado mining region, correct? And that includes the San Juan Mountains, which is where this happened. This is near Silverton, Colorado. Um, he has also studied and consulted on similar situations around the world. Um, next to him is Dan Elliott, who's with the Associated Press, um, or was until last month. And he covered natural resources in Colorado and the West, including the Colorado River and other water issues. And he covered the Gold King mine spill. Um, and Matt Brown, oh, sorry, Dina Gelio Whitaker of the Colville Confederated Tribes is a lecturer of American Indian Studies at California State University in San Marcos and a consultant. And she wrote the current, her new book, As Long as Grass Grows, <laughs> The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock. And that came out in April. It's on sale here at the conference. She can give um, some perspective on the effect of all this type of mining and use of the environment on Indian country. And then Matt Brown, a reporter for the Associated Press specializing in environmental issues, and especially in particular Superfund sites and toxic waste issues. So that's part of shedding light on the bigger picture. So um, I would start, so Dan, can you describe a little bit about um, the, the Gold King Mine spill and covering it? The, uh, the EPA uh, had a contractor crew at, at, the, at the mine that day. You could see the heavy equipment. Um, it's not entirely clear what they were trying to do. There were two different accounts. One was that they were trying to uh, insert a drain pipe into the debris dam that was inside that would allow them to to, to uh, uh, drain some of the water. The other explanation was that they, the excavator was trying to find whether there was solid rock uh, at, the, at the mine at it. Uh, the EPA itself has never, uh, to my knowledge, said exactly what they were doing. Uh, at any rate, they inadvertently um, uh, breached the debris dam, which released uh, the estimate is 3 million gallons uh, of acid uh, uh, mine waste. Uh, the final EPA's final estimates were 540 tons of heavy metals, mostly uh, iron uh, and aluminum. Uh, to put it in perspective, uh, about uh, 40 mine-related sites that are in that area uh, produce uh, about 5.4 million gallons per day of acid waste uh, in that immediate area. So um, the, the big difference in this case was that it all came out at once, which uh, I, I think, Ron, you can probably uh, speak to this, but had implications for 
uh, how those uh, metals uh, were distributed and what happens to them after that. The other aspect of it was it became a real heavy political issue um, because the EPA itself was the agency that caused the spill. Uh, it, it gave the critics of the EPA a very handy club uh, to beat them up with. Yeah, so that's a good segue to the scientific portion. He's our science guru today. Um, can you tell us like what we were seeing scientifically? I know that they thought that the water was lower than it was, so when they pushed through, they didn't expect the water to be right there as part of the problem. But there's a whole other host of issues related. Uh, it would probably take the whole session to really go through uh, some of the details and the history that resulted. Uh, that, that resulted uh, in this particular event. Um, I think uh, some of the important uh, takeaways of it is that um, consulting engineers uh, and the EPA are not perfect. Um, the techniques that they used to try to figure out how much water was behind all the blockage um, were the same techniques they used for many, many other mines, uh, and it worked. They used it for the Captain Jack mine west of Boulder and predicted how much water would be behind it. And you, you look for seeps and how high they're coming out on the mountain, and you look for the flow rates, and you can get an estimate of how much water is probably behind the blockages. And they did all those things, just like they've done before, except the hundreds of times that it turned out right, this time it turned out incorrect. And they did put that, uh, they call it a stinger pipe. It's a pipe that goes down on an angle, trying to tap into the water in order to allow the water to be controlled in the draining out so that you wouldn't have something like this. And suddenly they start see this fountain, and this was not good. Uh, the fountain turned into that flow that you saw. Now, the flow itself, um, being that it came out all at one time for the most part, uh, was very, very dramatic. The color changes, obviously, very, very dramatic. Um, the effect of putting it all in at once is like putting, you know what the old normal curve looks like that they show you in class? You put that normal curve of waste in there. And it goes in, and as it moves downstream, it spreads out. And as it spreads out, the peak concentrations come down. And as you move downstream site to site, it takes longer and longer for that plume of pollution to pass by any single point. By the time you get down to, uh, say, New Mexico, and then and you get down to uh, Indian reservations, it's taking uh, perhaps days to completely pass, whereas when it passed Durango, it probably only took several hours. But as it passes and it spreads out, the high concentrations come down, down, down. By the time you get to Lake Powell, you're hard put to actually get measurements that indicate that you had a spill. So uh, that's the significance of the sudden impact of this dramatic flow. Now, the key here also is, as you mentioned, uh, 3 million gallons per day plus spill into headwaters of Colorado rivers every day. And before the spill took place, the, uh, the Gold King mine was discharging maybe 250 gallons per minute. And you have a group of other mines there that are also spilling asset mine drainage on a continuous basis. And this has been going on for 100 some years. The Gold King was last worked in 1923. 1923. Just make sure it's in the mic. Yeah. The, the Gold King was last worked in 1923. Uh, now, when all this occurred, um, what it said to me was that as negative as all the water quality impacts might be downstream, one of the positive things was to perhaps uh, raise some consciousness about this issue of abandoned mines that need to be dealt with. And uh, I was hoping that this would be the case where suddenly the purses would open up, money would flood, flood in to start dealing with the, the thousands of abandoned mines through the Rocky Mountain region, and in the east as well, in the coal mines. Well, as usual, though, once a story starts to fade, as time passes, other stories take their place, and the interest 
is lost. But still, this served as, I think, a lesson to many people um, about, okay, we have a real problem here, a long-term problem that's impacting a lot of people in a lot of places. Um, and, uh, uh, and that would be pretty much my summary of what was happening with this particular spill and trying to put it in perspective. Thank you for that, Ron. Um, speaking of all the different varieties of people it affected, that brings us to native um, uh, Indian country because it had a direct and horrific impact on the Navajo Nation. And I know Dina can speak to um, some of that. So. Okay, so this is not just a shameless plug for my book. <laughs> but I did write about it a little bit, so I'm going to just read from you, or uh, read from the book for you, the, the paragraph or so that I did write about it. Um, and it's in a chapter that is um, about um, water and food and how water systems and food systems have been impacted by settler colonialism. Um, and that's the way that we think about it as scholars um, and um, in, in journalists too, but um, as native people, we think of our relationship to the United States in terms of this relationship of hege um, hegemony and domination um, through a legal system that is constantly reproduces itself in unjust ways that also um, uh, dis, um, dispossesses Native people of their lands in all these various kinds of ways, poisons the land, um, poisons the water, and um, finally has all these dramatic impacts on the bodies of Native people. So um, that's the context that I'm writing in. Um, and I'll just let's see here. Okay. Also in 2015, the San Juan River, which runs through the Navajo Nation in northern New Mexico, was poisoned when an abandoned gold mine known as the Gold King Mine near Silverton, Colorado, spilled three million gallons of acidic wastewater containing iron, uh, aluminum, manganese, lead, copper, and other heavy metals into the Animas River, a tributary of the San Juan. The spill turned the, the river's a sickening yellow-orange and underground wells used for drinking water were also contaminated. The rivers were used by the Navajos and other communities for ranching and irrigation. Around 2,000 Navajos were affected, and crop damage to Navajo farms was widespread. The Gold King Mine was managed by the EPA, which admitted responsibility and promised to pay $4.5 million in emergency costs to state, local, and tribal governments but they rebuffed accountability to the victims of the disaster when, in January 2017, they announced that they would refuse to pay 73 claims filed against them to the tune of $20.4 million based on sovereign immunity, which bars most lawsuits against the federal government. The EPA reported the same month that there were no long-term effects to the water quality of the rivers. The Navajo Nation is, understandably, not so easily convinced, given their history with uranium mining on the reservation, and is conducting its own studies in conjunction with Northern Arizona University, University of Arizona, Fort Lewis College, and Diné College to understand the long-term ramifications to the Navajo community. Yeah, and Dan, you had spoken a little bit about the EPA skirting its responsibility. And I guess, Matt, if you want to chime in there as well. Um, oh, grab the mic. <laughs> Sorry. Well, they were reluctant to, um, they were reluctant to take responsibility, that's for sure. They were reluctant to, in, in the days after, and Dan knows this, the weeks after, the months after, some of y'all probably know this too, they, they were reluctant to give any details about what happened as well, um, and to, um, but thanks to the FOIA process, uh, sometimes it works, we were able to get some of the documents related to it, um, and found that there was a, for instance, there was, there was a safety plan where they had anticipated uh, that something like this could happen, but there wasn't much done by way of, uh, they weren't ready when it, when it did happen. Um, it, it quickly, as Dan alluded to, became caught up in this political, swirl right where they they um 
Republicans seized on it. Lamar Smith, I believe is his name, out of yes. Texas, right? Um, he was a science committee chairman at the time. Um, uh, Barrasso, Senator Barrasso, John Barrasso up in Wyoming. And he also has a lot of influence. He seized on it. Other Republic, uh, uh, Rob Bishop in Utah, they, were, they held a lot of hearings where they basically grilled the EPA. Um, you know, how, how could you let this happen? The EPA is, is you're showing, you don't know what you're doing was the message they wanted to put it across, which was interesting because one, you could argue that, you know, they didn't know everything, didn't know what they were doing, but, but it was used to sort of smash down on, on the EPA. Um, not necessarily in, in the interest of making sure that there wasn't um, another accident. Um, so, yeah, there was there was some reluctance to, but but they had to. I mean, it's it was their thing, uh, and and they had to uh, ultimately own it. I, I'd be interested to, to sh just to speak about the. Do you oh, want to say something wrong? No, no, no. I was thought you were done. No, can oh. I? Oh, go ahead, please. <laughs> So was there was there any when by the time I wrote this, um, it was uh, and it was submitted to the publisher. So there's a lag time, and so I wrote the information that um, was the most up to date information as of July of um, would have been 2017. So was there other developments since then, and, and did the the EPA actually um, pay off claims or have any kind of other accountability actions? Dan, follow that part of it. Um, the EPA did pay uh, several million dollars. I, I don't remember the, the final figure in um, emergency response costs. For example, the, the Navajo uh, Nation uh, brought in a lot of water uh, uh, to use emergency water for livestock, that kind of thing. The EPA did pay several million dollars. I don't remember what the final figure was for that. Um, what they also did uh, is, is they made uh, a lot of people came away from it with the impression that EPA said, we're going we're to make you whole. We're going to repay your, your damages. And, and so a lot of companies, it, it, was, it was almost, uh, it, was, it was sort of uh, uh, kind of moving. It, it, some, some of the claims were like uh, 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 rafting guides who said, I lost $400 uh, pay. Because uh, I, I couldn't go rafting that day. Uh, some businesses, one business in Durango I talked to hired an accountant to go through all their losses and came up with I think, close to $75,000. Um, the total ended up, uh, uh, excluding what the states and the Navajos asked for, was around $400 million. And the EPA said, as you alluded to, that, um, well, we can't pay it uh, uh, because of the federal torts uh, claim. Uh, law, uh, uh, and it's very complicated and won't go into it, uh, but they said, no, we can't pay it, which left a lot of people feeling betrayed. Uh, and I didn't personally hear any of the EPA assurances, but an awful lot of people came away from it, um, from it with the idea that the EPA said, hey, we're, we're, we'll take care of this. I just, I just, I just want oh, yeah, they acknowledge that it was their responsibility, but in terms of paying out the, the damages, that's that's something that I think is is ongoing. Just and um, there are three, at least three lawsuits pending in U.S. District Court in Albuquerque. A uh, total of over two billion dollars in damages. Uh, One point nine billion of that is from Utah. Um, uh, so, just to put it in perspective, but the, the final uh, settlement has uh, there, we're a long way from an end on that. Thank you, guys. Um, no, oh, I think it's important. With, uh, sure, sure, yeah. sure. I was going to ask you about. <laughs> okay. Um, I'd like to mention something when you mentioned the, the politics with the Republicans. Um, when I started to get involved with the Gold King Mines Bill, uh, strictly from the technical end, I found out that you can't get away from the politics, no matter what you do. But um, I got a call from the chief of staff from Lamar Smith. And he said, will you come down and testify for us, you know, with the Republicans uh, controlling the committee, uh, and this is what we want you to testify. Uh, and after explaining it all, I said, it sounds like Lamar Smith, the head of that, that committee, who is not a scientist, um, and knows very little about science. Uh, this individual um, uh, had already written the report 
that he was taking that uh, he used this club to beat EPA on the head. Um, and I said, why do you want me to testify if it's already been written? It makes no difference. And I'm going to have to subject myself to questioning where I can't give full answers and I'm put on the spot. Um, and, uh, and I won't simply say what you want me to say. Uh, so I was summarily dismissed by the uh, chief of staff of Lamar Smith. Uh, I got a call from uh, uh, the group and the Democrats on the committee and say, can you tell us more about this? And we spent a couple of hours on the phone. Um, the woman who's on, the Democratic woman who's on the committee, and I forget her name now, but she used most of what I said when it came her turn to speak on that committee. So that's just to attest to how political it really did get. But I, I actually turned down the Democrats, too, because since the report was done, why, why take the abuse? That's great. Um, um, I wanted to steer back. That, yeah, so you can see it's such a political mess, and we haven't even gotten to the environment part, right? And this is happening all over the place. Um, Ron, can you go into some of the sort of geography and you know the sort of chem the science part of what we were looking at and how the effect on the larger environment and how these leaks happen i was saying to some of you the other day it's kind of like when you have a leaky roof you don't know where the leak is coming from so people think they shored it up but then the water is showing up in places they didn't expect it and so and if you could talk about that um it's actually all pretty interesting and this particular area is is very complex in fact, nobody has a map of all the workings underground. Uh, there are some generalized maps, and we know where, uh, where tunnels have been dug, dug. And what's really interesting is the Gold King mine at one time was a dry mine. It wasn't spilling acid mine drainage. Uh, and the acid mine drainage was coming out of mine portals that were lower in altitude. And, uh, and causing problems there, and uh, very significant problems. The, um, uh, when they, they dug a tunnel underneath all the mine workings to drain the water so the mines would be dry. And that became a major source of acid mine drainage. And then when the, um, one of the mines, which I believe was the, uh, what is it, the Red and Benino mine, uh, they, uh, they decided that after they finished the workings, they were going to put a plug in it. Now, it sounds like they took a cork and, you know, and stuck it in the mine portal. But no, they put a 12-foot thick reinforced concrete plug in there to keep the water from coming out. That 400 gallons per minute of water. So now you have a plug there. So uh, what happens is the water builds up behind that plug. And it builds up, and it builds up, and it finds the next level where there's an opening to the outside. And it finds every crack and crevice in the, uh, in the rocks for the water to discharge. And now you're getting discharged all over the place and seeps all over the place. Well, one of the places for that water to come out was the Gold King Mine. And the Gold King Mine became a, an acid mine drainage discharging mine. Okay, so, and this changed. Every time they manipulated the system, dug a new tunnel, uh, everything would change in the hydrology. That, in the hydrology. And that made it very difficult for anybody to go in and try to judge just how much water was there. Uh, there were a lot of complaints about the fact that in many mines, you go above the mine and you drill downwards. And then you can hit the water and tell what the water level is. But if you go to the Gold King Mine, it's a very steep slope that keeps collapsing of loose rock. And the hard rock that's up there that's solid has a tendency to cave in. And they had no money to do anything like that. In fact, they had to beg for $4,000 in order to do some work that hadn't been planned. It was very, very low budget operation. Uh, and so they couldn't drill from the top like they do for some mines. They'd have to build a whole road, stabilize it. It would take years and, uh, and lots of millions of dollars. So uh, everything was done um, on the cheap. 
which with a lot of these abandoned mines, that's the way it goes. There's just not very much money available. But at any rate, um, yes, it was a dry mine at one time, and it became wet. It's now discharging around 400 gallons per minute that go to some treatment facilities. And, um, and that, a lot of that water is being treated. Uh, it's problematic during the winter keeping those things operating, but um, it is now still discharging, but they have control of it and let the water out as, as need be. So, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of changes in that area and great difficulty in trying to understand exactly what's going on in this region. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so can we talk a little about what acid mine drainage contains? Because I know it's like, oh, bad chemicals. And it's leaching out, is it, into all the drinking water? And also, I want to get, I want to move beyond the Gold King yeah. to talk about the bigger picture and just the general contamination um, in that region, because that's just one little area, right? And this is like the San Juan Mountains or the southwestern Colorado, and then it all drains down toward New Mexico and... Yeah, we, we actually had a spill up near Golden, Colorado, near where I live. It was spilled up uh, on Clear Creek uh, that occurred. And the water looked just like uh, uh, the water from the, the Gold King, except that I think it was in 2011 that we had the spill that went practically by my house. Um, but at any rate, in terms of this asset mine drainage, uh, to keep it simple, there are a couple of items you need to make asset mine drainage. You need... Sulfide materials, you know, uh, uh, fool's gold, pyrite, it contains sulfide. You need sulfide material. You need oxygen or air to get in there to oxidize that sulfide material. You need water and you need microbes. Now, you give me air, water, and sulfides, I'll give you microbes. They're there and, uh, and they'll be loving it. Uh, and once you have all those together, they start the reactions that generate, instead of this sulfur that's part of the pyrite, it becomes sulfuric acid. Mm. Now, metals, the more acid it is, the more the metals dissolve. So when you get very acid water, it can dissolve the metals to very high concentrations. And this action occurs and becomes a cyclic uh, reaction that takes place, and you generate more and more metals in the water as well as acidity. Now, this water, you know, we see up in the San Juans, you know, it goes down to about a pH 2.7, which is more acid than vinegar. And that picks up the metals that are in the system. And so you get iron and aluminum, manganese, cadmium, lead, zinc, and a whole slew of other uh, metals, plus things like thallium. And they all dissolve in that acidic water. Okay, so this is what you expect to get when this water becomes discharged, particularly after the water has been sitting there against the metals. Now, a lot of the mining people, uh, they won't, they'll get mad at me if I, at, I'm at a meeting and I talk about asset mine drainage. And they say, well, no, you know, it's not just mines. You can have like an asset bog of iron bog. That's a natural system and the water will look very much like that. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. And then, so it became asset rock drainage. Okay, uh, the current uh, politically correct term is mining influence waters. <laughs> okay, uh, yes, please. We prefer pollution. Pollution, yeah, <laughs> we prefer pollution. So, yeah, uh, I'm trying to be politically correct. <laughs> so, um, uh, the fact is, when the mine goes in, you know, normally you have this rock. Imagine a great big rock that has all these metals and sulfides inside of it. It's not in contact with air and water, is it? You don't have mine drainage. I take that rock and I break it up into small little pieces. I've just increased the surface area exposed to air and water by a million times. So you know what? Yeah, there's some natural systems that generate acid, but they're pretty uncommon. 
when you go in there and break up that rock and you dig a tunnel that goes in and an adit that goes in and the air comes in along with the water that drains through, you get asset mine drainage. And so I still call it that. Can you talk about how long the process goes? Oh, oh, good. We'll have some questions in a minute, but yeah, you want to talk to, let's ask how long it takes for that process to happen. Um, once the microbes have built up, which doesn't take particularly long, um, the in, if you have the ideal conditions, uh, it's pretty quick. And how long does it continue? And, and now the question is, how long does it continue? Now, I work in South Africa about a month each year with similar type problems in uranium uh, pollution and things. And uh, we've actually tried to estimate there, uh, you know, if we let it sit and we control the water, how long will it have the capacity to drain asset mine drainage. And when you do the calculations, and they're very, very rough, uh, the answer we'll give to, say, one particular site is, given these conditions, it'll probably go on for 50 to 200 years. This particular site, 500 to 1,000 years. But then again, I'll be retired by then, and, <laughs> and it doesn't matter. So, um, the, uh, uh, so it can go on for a long, long time, depending on the particular conditions. But you're talking about tens and hundreds of years that it can continue. Thank you. So I want to bring Matt in to talk about, because who's cleaning up this mess, sort of who's accountable, who's cleaning up. So that brings us to Superfund sites, because the Gold King Mine area was dubbed the Bonita Peak District. Um, and if you could talk a little also about how that reflects on the national problem, um, because these are all over the country. And if you could talk about how many of this type of site um, and what happens to change all the cleanup stuff when a Superfund is designated. Remind me if I don't hit all of those. That, could you pull up that map? Would you mind? Oh, yeah. um, so uh, while she's doing that, I just want to say I applaud all of y'all for being interested in uh, mining pollution. It's kind of yesterday at the plenary. plenary? For those who were there, there was um, for one of the events they were talking about um, how does, are people interested in climate change given what's going on with Ukraine? Um, which I thought was kind of an interesting question. So I, I think we would rank a little below climate change, but it, but it's really, it is really important, and it is all over the place. So this uh, map, let me just look at it too. Shows this is uh, the BLM has tried to inventory. Um, they've tried to inventory yeah, all of the all of the abandoned mines across across the West on on public lands, and they've they've been doing this for. Uh, a number of years, and they've, I think to date, they've inventoried, counted, um, 52,000 uh, odd uh, mining sites um, across the U.S. Uh, of those sites, um, and this is just, again, sites primarily on public lands, they have analyzed, which means kind of seeing what the problem is, with only, only a small fraction of those mines, about 30 5,000 um, haven't even been analyzed. Um, there are a lot of mines across the U.S. that haven't been dealt with. The estimates are, there's a number that um, Alan's group, I think, um, has all pulled together about five, half a million, which, as it sounds, is a pretty rough number. The up Western governor says 300,000. Okay. Uh, the upshot is nobody really seems to know, uh, but there's, there's an awful lot of them. There's uh, a fair number of them have become Superfund sites. There's several hundred um, that are under the Superfund program or under related programs. I, might, I imagine that y'all, is everybody familiar with Superfund generally? Um, so just very briefly, it was a law passed in 1980, I believe. Um, yeah, so, so. So the, the yellow is the uh, public lands, the BLM lands. The black is the abandoned mines. Uh, many of those dots, I believe, represent multiple mines. Because some mining sites, like um, up at Bonita Peak, will have hundreds of mines. If, is that a fair number? Yeah. Um, so since 1980, uh, under Superfund, the most uh, uh, contaminated sites, the government has tried to uh, find who's responsible for them and 
uh, get them to pay, um, they don't always find people who are responsible. A lot of mining companies, after they, after they mine the ore, they'll go bankrupt and they leave, and that leaves it um, on the taxpayers essentially to, to pick up the cost. But, but the, as Ron was saying, the uh, pollution continues for a long time. Um, of those uh, 400 odd mines, uh, I think only a small fraction have been uh, fully cleaned. Um, if you, if you, just to go down. So Bonita Peak, that area has uh, 15 million gallons a day of discharge. You go to North Carolina, <clears throat> the ore knob mine has more than a million gallons. Um, it just goes, just goes on and on. Oh, yeah. So, Dina, I was going to go to you next. Um, yeah, so you, uh, yeah, so you should say I, I had an idea, too, about um, I was talking to someone on the Navajo Nation, a hydrologist um, who worked with the people. She said that, you know, it's, uses of the river vary between and the relationship to the river varies. So maybe you were going to speak to that or whatever you want. No, I was going to speak to the Superfund issue. Oh, great. Sorry. And, and no, that's fine. So I'm going to read some more <laughs> because I have done this research already. Um, so in 2014, Indian Country Today reported that of the United States, at that time it was, according to this story, 1,322 Superfund sites. Does that match with your... That's, yeah. So three... Thir uh, and se sorry, several hundred of those are, are mining sites. Okay. So of the 1,322 Superfund sites, 532 of them are located on Indian lands. Um, an astoundingly disproportionate figure, considering how little of the U.S. land-based is Indian trust land. Superfund sites are designated under the Comprehensive Environmental Response um, uh, Compensation and Liability Act, that's called CERCLA, of 1980. These sites are not just uranium or coal mines either. Some Superfund sites, like the General Motors and Alcoa aluminum facilities, both in uh, Messina, New York, adjacent to the St. Regis Mohawk Reservation, were polluted due to manufacturing processes that leached PCBs and other hazardous substances into, uh, into local water sources and ecosystems. Of the toxic sites the Indian, uh, that Indian Country Today's story listed, however, the majority were the result of extractive industries. Some were well known, like the Midnight Mine in Washington, um, which is an, uh, a uranium, like open pit uranium mine. Um, others less so, like the Salt Chuck Mine in southeast Alaska on the traditional lands of the organized village of Kassan which operated as a uh, copper, palladium, gold, and silver mine from 1916 to 1941, or the Sulphur Bank Mercury Mine, which is now the home of the Elam Band of Pomo Indians in Northern California, where mercury poisons people's bodies and contaminated nearby Clear Lake, a traditional source of fish for the tribe, making it the most mercury-polluted lake in the world or the abandoned Rio Tinto copper mine site in Nevada near the lands of Shoshone Paiute tribes of Duck Valley, where the mine operated from 1932 to 1976 and whose mill tailings made Mill Creek uninhabitable for red band trout, an important cultural food source. And so, um, you know, then there's the issue of the, all the abandoned uranium mines in the vicinity of the Navajo Nation, which number in over 1,000. Um, and um, some, uh, just a few years ago, there was uh, a settlement to clean up uh, um, that was funded to clean up. It was, there was a funding, I think it was $5 billion, to, um, to do some of that cleanup and remediation. But that number, that $5 billion, was only enough to clean up 49 of those thousand plus mines. So, oh, yeah. Go ahead, Matt. So, so on, on the cleanup, so the, the way Superfund works is they try to find a responsible party, which means a person that caused the pollution. Often they cannot, like I said, if, if the company has gone bankrupt, they can't. Um, then it's co is rolled into the Superfund program, which has, um, I think it's about a, uh, about a little over a billion dollars a year. Um, that number has been going down. Uh, for actual cleanups, there's just a couple hundred million dollars a year. That number has also been going down. And so this money has to be spread across um, 
hundred thousand more than a thousand sites. So it takes a long time to get them done. Uh, the the Tar Creek Tar Creek mining complex down in Oklahoma. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Um, the, Many of them. The, there's a lot of them. <laughs> that was one of, you've heard of uh, Love Canal probably. Uh, so Tar Creek was one of the first uh, Superfund sites in 1983, I believe it was designated. And to date, they've, they've done a lot of cleanup work. They've spent, I think, several hundred million dollars. But the, the discharge of the, of the water, they have not addressed. So every day, um, there is about a, a million gallons of water comes out of that site and into uh, the wetlands around there, into the streams, um, and is, just continues to uh, pollute. Great. Well, thank you, guys. This is our question time now. There's a half an hour. Um, so if any of you have questions, if not, we can just keep talking, because obviously we have so much to say. <laughs> Um, yeah, and so state your name. SEJ members get priority, and state your name and your affiliation, and um, um, yeah, and back the blue shirt. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the question was from Peter Essek, a photographer in Atlanta. Um, are there any new technologies available to treat this so that we don't have to wait for 200 years for it to work its way out? I can, t I can talk a little bit about uh, that. Uh, uh, I was involved a lot with some of the promising technologies, um, and for many years, um, there are techniques out there, including you may have heard about wetland treatment systems and um, various other types of passive treatment systems. Uh, the reality is that uh, at this point, um, many of those have been built and tested. Only a few of them have actually worked. Um, they tend to work for very small flows and not and are not very good for uh, very um, very large flows um, and uh, uh, work continues with them the problem is that once those systems came out these passive treatment systems um, a lot of consulting companies grabbed onto them and started marketing themselves as knowledgeable in building these systems and uh, then would go out and build a system often four five and six generations of science old, because they haven't kept up with the literature, and they would fail and fail and fail, and it became harder and harder to get funds uh, to even do pilot studies uh, on many of these new type systems. Um, there have been um, techniques to spray rocks with various materials to isolate the rocks from the air and the water that you need to generate the acid mine drainage. It's worked sometimes, but it's not, uh, not well enough uh, and not long enough to really be fully effective yet. What you find for the most part is that the fallback of the conventional chemical precip precipitation technologies are what it comes to where they're going to add lime and they're going to have a turnkey system where they can go in turn it on, add the lime, buy 20,000 pounds of lime a week, and continue to generate the sludge that it generates. Because we know it works, we know we can control it, the limitations are when you're at uh, uh, 10,500 feet or 11,500 feet altitude, and you have to build a plant that has to be operated 24 hours a day with supplies brought in, you have to build roads and... Um, and then, of course, you're operating almost in perpetuity. So it gets rather expensive. You generate that sludge, you, you spend another million dollars to build a sludge drying plant up there that runs year in and year out. But we keep falling back to that all around the world because we know it can work. And the promising technologies remain, in the most cases, promising. Oh, no. um, yeah, N N Nancy, yeah. Nancy Costello, um, independent journalist. Uh, could you please? Yeah, so there's, um, this is Nancy Costaldo, a freelance journalist. What are the ramifications of the pollution on the, the water quality and on the aquatic life and um, on people? Um, I can speak uh, in, in a limited way about the Gold King. Uh, the EPA said shortly after, within a month of the spill, they said that... Um, 
water quality in the um, Animus River had returned to pre-spill levels, which is not to say it was clean, but it was just as dirty as it was before uh, the spill. Um, uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife put a cage with I don't know how many trout fingerlings. 109. 109. 109 trout uh, in Durango, and I think only one of them died. One of them died. Um, it died on the way there. Oh, <laughs> it died on the way there. Um, and and uh, at some point, uh, Parks and Wildlife said that trout out of the river was safe. Uh, so it appears, at least with the Gold King, the official accounts are that the, 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 the effects on, on the fish uh, were short-lived. Uh, as for the, the aquifer, that's, that's an excellent question, and I don't know of any studies that were done on that with, with the Gold King. Ron, do you know of any? No, I don't know of uh, any studies that were done. I know that some small, uh, some small colleges down in uh, southern Colorado and New Mexico did get involved with taking some sampling and, were, and may very well have taken some samples. I never had the opportunity to see any of those results. Um, I did see the sampling regime that was done, which is a sampling regime that would not hold up under scientific uh, scrutiny. Uh, but... Um, in terms of the, the aquifers, I haven't seen any data. So um, one of the big examples that comes to mind is um, in Arizona with the Peabody mine. So that's probably something a lot of people are familiar with, the Peabody coal mine, which took place on Hopi lands, um, where coal mining was... Um, was the, so when coal was taken out of the earth, it was used. They used a slurry technique in order to transfer um, coal to its shipping stations um, and and the and the power plants. And so um, the way that they the slurry was taken from this water for this underground desert water for, um, and um, you know among the promises that were made by the the company, you know we're talking we're going back to the 1970s I think now. Um, um, was that there would be, you know, effectively no impact to the to the to the aquifer? Of course, this is the source of water for desert dwelling, ancient desert dwelling communities. Um, and so, but what happened decades later after the the Peabody coal mine was finally um, shuttered, um, testing of the levels of the aquifer. Um, it's somewhere in my book, and I don't remember what the exact numbers are, but it was something the aquifer had been depleted um, significantly, something like 40%, maybe 50%, and, and it actually dried up springs um, that had um, been in use for hundreds of years, had been ceremonial sites for the Hopi. And um, there's actually a, a, um, a film, there's a film called In Light, in the light of reverence, it was made in the early 2000s. It talks about um, the some sites where tribes have been fighting to protect sacred sites, and um, they talk to the Hopi, and they they actually show photographs of. Um, some of the wells and these springs that they had been using you know, that go back to the turn of the 20th century, like where the spring is full of water and, and they go to the site and there's like no water in it anymore. Um, so, so, so it's not just the issues of pollution, but it's you know, the drawing down of, um, of these aquifers. Something um, I'm aware of right now and something to keep in mind as journalists, if, you think, if you're doing these kinds of stories, there's a story right now, um, something it's called the Broad, Broadic, Broderick, or um, I can't remember the name. It's a, it's a new um, uranium mine that's being proposed in South Dakota in the Black Hills. And um, it's uh, an in situ uranium mine that is within an aquifer. And I don't get this. I can maybe maybe you guys under know about this. I don't know, but this is the EPA. I just happened to hear the EPA was holding public comments about this just last week, um, and live streamed them, and I caught part of it. But um, needless to say, this is the Black Hills. This is the cent center of the world for Lakota people, and they are deeply. Um, Concerned and alarmed about this because how do you how do you mine with uh, uranium within an aquifer without you know what could go wrong with that? So um, this is uh, it's it's insane to me, but this is something that's um, keep uh, happening. 
I just want to add one thing about the um, impacts. And so Gold King, in terms of what happened, uh, just keep in mind, Gold King was, even though it was dramatic and it made the water yellow and was all over the TV, it was really small in terms of, there was a huge slug of water that went down, but it was really small in terms of the amount, as Ron alluded to earlier, said earlier, uh, in terms of the amount of water uh, that was involved with with the but w when you look at um, the totality of all the mines, not just the ones that are the Superfund sites, there is a lot of of uh, wastewater that is just well dripping is the wrong word that is just continually flowing into into creeks and streams and and aquifers in a lot of areas they they have at Tar Creek for example. Uh, there's a few areas in in Montana where it has. Uh, very much impacted the aquifers, and people in the EPA comes in and they and they put uh, bottled water systems um, or some alternative water system in, and then just because of the limits of the Superfund program, uh, that's often that often continues for years, for decades before they get to actually remediate uh, the site. Um, let's see back there. Yeah. Hi, um, I'm Shannon. I Sh Shannon. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So a resource question. That's good because I did want to bring it back to journalists and you know tips on how to get how to mine these records. So what are some of the resources that? Huh, that's right. See what I did there. <laughs> um, yeah. How to dig into these records and get the info that they're trying to hide, et cetera. Uh, there, there is a ton of data on the EPA site. Um, you sort of have to uh, learn it. There's no easy way into it. Um, uh, and and most of it honestly is incomprehensible to me, uh, and so I end up calling. I, I mean, I did talk to Ron in the reporting I did on this story. Uh, there's another uh, a fellow named Marco Kaltoffen, uh who's been a big help. Uh, but uh, uh, the EPA is not a very user friendly uh, agency. Um, and uh, my experience, they, they tend to use a lot of jargon, and they assume you know it, and you just have to keep asking and asking and asking. Uh, I've I filed a lot of FOIA requests. Most most of that was about the money end of it, not the technical end of it. But they do post a lot of technology. Making sense of it is totally beyond me. So I just rely on people like Ron. Uh, so. I agree that the EPA can sometimes be really hard to work with. I do have to give them credit. I did a story on mine, mining waste, which I think is what landed me on this panel um, earlier this year, um, in which the EPA provided a lot of data um, and interesting. So we had gone to them and said, so how much, how much of this is happening across the country? Or how much, even at your Superfund sites, how much water is coming out of your or mining related Superfund sites? And they said essentially, well, that's a that's a really good question, and so they went and um, gathered from the mines that they had the data. Um, they compiled that and, and uh, even gave some and did some calculations, figuring out the average flow rates. Because I think it really brought to their attention that not just my question, but Gold King and the many questions that, that followed that they didn't have a good handle on uh, on on the big picture. Um, but they're not always helpful, often not helpful, as, as Dan said. Uh, you didn't say that directly, but, um, but there are alternatives. So you can, um, you can look, go to their website and look through the documents themselves, which can be pretty dense. Um, increasingly, it's actually hard to find those documents. They have uh, regional libraries, Denver, whichever way Denver is, they have a, a regional library. Um, but they don't even keep the documents in those libraries anymore, which is a little uh, disturbing. They they store a lot of them offsite, and and they can't even get them themselves, except they uh, through a, a long uh, requisition process. But you can. There's other sources. You can go to uh, local health officials, um, state agencies. They'll typically work really closely with the EPA on on Superfund sites. So they usually have actually for that story. I, w I went to the state to get to fill the gaps on or to states to fill the gaps on EPA information so to get EPA documents I would go to the states because they actually they actually keep them um, individual Superfund sites often have um, uh, what are known as citizens advisory groups CAGs or technical advisory groups TAGs which um, 
advise the EPA, and, and they're a good source for, especially the citizens advisory groups for those, you know, what is happening to, to people, right? Or, or it's, it's made up of people in the community and you can find out um, what's going on. Uh, there's, they have, um, at various points, they take public comments for these sites when, when they're designating, when they're in the process of designating them, uh, and they keep records of those. And when you go back and look through them, you can find, again, people who are, who are impacted. Um, and then there's also other agencies, too, the, the uh, like Government Accountability Office. They put out reports, have put out reports on uh, mining issues. The Office of Inspector General with the Department of Interior. Um, the USGS has, has done a lot of uh, uh, work on it. The Congressional Resource Service. Um, there are advocacy groups, Earthworks, Alan over there. Uh, they do more mining stuff. They are they are like mining obsessed. They know a, they know a lot about it. Um, uh, and then, like I said before, local health officials too often have a lot of information. Great. So next question, you did have your hand raised, or yeah, I was wondering if oh, uh, identify yourself. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I'm Alan Septoff with Mining Obsessed Earthworks, <laughs> and. Uh, that sort of thing. Very good. So this is Alan Septoff from Earthworks. He wants to know um, putting the Gold King spill into the larger context of policy. How is all this allowed to happen, basically, in the Gold King and beyond? Uh, um, I guess I'll start. Um, the many of these mines we're dealing with, you know, shut down a long time ago. Uh, you know, uh, you have ones that have shut down fairly recently, like the Eagle Mine in Mintern. Um, it was shut down, what, in the late 70s or so. Uh, others, though, have been shut down for 100 years. And when they were shut down, uh, there were little to no regulations associated with, uh, with containing anything. You, you, left, you picked up your equipment and you left your site. And that was that. So meantime... Um, you go underground, and there's going to be water. You know, uh, you, you don't need a dowsing stick. You can actually say, there's water down there. And you start digging, and you're going to hit the water. And that's why so much effort goes in in digging like the American tunnel at the Gold King mine to drain all the other mines so they can operate dry. And now you're left with this flow that's now varying from the natural system. You've hit the subsurface hydrology and... Uh, created the short circuiting in the flow of the water so that you know other places may very well dry up uh, but there were no rules in place and uh, it's interesting because I've worked on some issues where the mining companies have claimed that uh, even when they shut down mines in the 60s and 70s well we really didn't know there was a problem we really didn't know about asset mine drainage uh, the only problem is is I've found uh, uh, laws on the books in Colorado that date back to the 1870s about your tailings and your asset mine drainage and flooding uh, uh, the lower 40 of somebody's uh, ranch and the cattle are getting sick. Uh, there's articles in 1929, Engineering and Mining Journal. Watch out for this asset mine drainage. It'll eat away at all your pumps and things. Uh, the, the, in 1944, there's a handbook on how to uh, handle asset mine drainage from uh, the Bureau of Mines. Uh, yeah, they knew about it. Um, but um, uh, they knew about it, but there was no arm of enforcement. And without no um, arm of enforcement taking place, then there's going to be, what was the, I forget the quote, it was unwilling sharing of costs. <laughs> That's the people, it's a, um, it's the fact that if you do not have uh, uh, enforced regulations, uh, there'll be an unshare, unwilling sharing of costs. So the people downstream and downwind are actually paying for part of your processes that should be internalized with the mining company. Well, they weren't internalized to the mining company. The people downwind and downstream paid the cost in one fashion um, or another. Um, and that's how it went until NEPA, National Environmental Policy Act, came up. And suddenly they were called to account to some degree. Yeah, yeah. Just a quick resource to mention when I was doing my research. Um, uh, there's a book called River of Lost Souls by Jonathan Thompson. It's a really great book that gives a whole history of the area and how that was allowed to 
evolve with zero regulation. And um, it's it reads like a whodunit, except it's more like a who didn't do it. <laughs> Because it's like everybody and anybody was just like plopping down, staking a mining claim, digging all this stuff up, dumping everything everywhere, not even thinking about it at all. And there was some pushback in the late 1800s, early 1900s, even that early. And one of the some of the companies, their defense was something along. The, I'm really paraphrasing something along the lines of, "Well, we can't help it. It's gravity, and we're creating jobs." And so um, I. Highly recommend looking up that book. It's a it's a good read and it'll it gives like a very good overview. Um, Dan, you had something to or did, any more questions or Dan, did you have some answer you wanted to give too? Well, one uh, one one minor point and that that's a great expression about the un unwilling sharing of costs. Um, with EPA with a Superfund site, after uh, varying periods of time, the cost reverts to the home state. Uh, there is a, uh, a Superfund cleanup site in uh, Idaho Springs that I think has reverted to Colorado, and that's costing a million to two million dollars a year to operate, and that's a traditional lime uh, precipitation uh, plant. And there's no end in sight uh, uh, that will probably run, you know, like say 500 to 1,000 years. I'll say just um, um, as far as an answer to your question about policy relative to Indian country, there's a whole other level of um, protocol that needs to be followed in anything related to, and I'm not an expert at this, but what I do know is that um, any projects that involve um, development um, around tr near trust lands, Indian trust lands or treaty lands, um, there's a whole other level of um, uh, protocols that have to be followed um, that that involve consultation with um, tribes, and um, and this is it's it's a very like tricky situation. It's something that um, it's it's an impediment on one hand. It's been seen as an impediment to development. Um, it, and certainly for native, for tribes that are wanting to do like extractive processes and development processes on their lands, it's a source of frustration. But on the other hand, um, this, um, these obstacles that it throws up, this like additional layer of obstacles kind of serves as almost as a, a buffer to some of these, um, you know, or like a, la a layer almost of protection. Um, but it's also one of the reasons the Trump administration wants to help relax some of those, um, those rules. Um, so that they can get at those resources that are on Indian trust lands um, a little bit more quickly. And of course, they do it under the language of, you know, liberation. We're going to liberate you from the yoke of the federal government, which is language we've heard before um, and is used as an argument to basically privatize native lands and, um, and abrogate um, the federal government's responsibility, treaty-based responsibility. Thank you. We have time for one last question. So back there, you had one? So the question is from Jennifer at Landscape Architect Magazine, and it's specifically about this site in Butte, Montana, um, but how to, in general, tell and report these stories when you have just a thousand or two words that give something new to people who already are very versed in it and also informs people without bogging down in the process and the explanation and um, brings people into it so that you feel engaged and think, oh, that could be me type of thing. I would say, first of all, as somebody who's a journalist, uh, you know, a native person who's a journalist and a scholar, um, the one of the biggest sins that happens in journalism and um, scholarship even is that stories always begin with settlers, settler histories, and um, that that there's like the history of of people on the land and the way people have used land um, for thousands and thousands of years get completely um, erased. And so, um, if you're willing, if you're if you're wanting to do like ethical journalism that that includes indigenous perspectives as the you know original people on the land who have deep 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 knowledge of place, um, start with that. Start start with um, those knowledges and um, you know how native people you know in, in, um, integrated with the land or, or inact, interacted with the land. How did they use the resources? How did they? How did we get here? How did we get from this to this place where 
all of a sudden land is is controlled by white European foreign settlers. Um, so so context. It's about context, and you know that that's I think one of the best things that journalists can do, and I think um, one of the paradigm shifts I, that need to happen. So I was remiss earlier not mentioning tribes as a resource as well for for information about even when you're just looking for the raw data, if there is a tribe in the area where it's being impacted, they will often have that data as well. But it's I think you're on the right track with trying to um, approach it from, as Dina said and Teresa said, from the perspective of people, right? And that's something I think we um, are often guilty of getting away from and we get involved in the process and how many gallons are, are leaking and how much metal is uh, in it um, in this polluted water um, but really starting from the other side who who is who is that affecting um, and or what is it affecting is if it's affecting fish or if it's affecting other aquatic life or it's getting into the aquifers and and um, then who drinks that water who who uses those streams so I think you're on the right track I'm I'm not a scientific person at all, and I always preface interviews with people like Ron that I had a D in high school chemistry and felt really lucky. Um, I've I've always approached it. I've I've always approached environmental stories uh, from the perspective of of what are the impacts on these places that that I really love. And, and I work from there, and, and which uh, sort of leads me to these uh, statements. Uh, you, you, you get the science, but I've always tried to use the science as kind of the underpinning for you know, what, what's happening, what's, why are these trees turning yellow, uh, but you, don't, you know, that, that kind of thing. It's a very unscientific approach, um, uh, and you end up leaving things out that are probably important, but no matter what you do, you've got to make those choices. So I, I've never tried to a, approach it as a science story, but rather as a story about what, what is this doing to this place, to, to these people who 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 know it, so, sort of as an experience rather than as an analytical exchange with with the land, if that makes any sense. I'll mention that uh, although you know we get uh, stereotyped as engineers and such, I was a music major when I started college. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's math and science backed. Um, so I wanted to say we are going to have, I have links too, and we're going to put them in a Google Doc and post them um, so you can all um, have it. And I guess it's lunchtime, so just let's thank you to these awesome panelists. I'm so grateful. And thanks to you guys for coming. Thank you. Thank you.